pretty convicting. If you're just joining us, this is a tough series. <laughs> We're in the second week of what we call Counterfeit Gods, based off of a book by Timothy Keller. Uh, but we're not necessarily teaching the book. We're teaching scripture principles and practicals for addressing a huge issue in our culture. And so I'm going to tell you again, if, if that makes you uncomfortable, if that maybe even offends you, that's okay. That's okay. That is okay. Why? It's because this should offend us. This should shake us to the core because we live in a culture that is bound up. We just sang a song, my chains are gone. Our culture has chains all around us called idols. And today we're going to look at a serious issue of idolatry in our lives. So I'm going to challenge you. I'm going to challenge myself. And then later on you'll hear uh, that I'm practicing what I preach. <laughs> um, definitely have not arrived in this area. I have idols of my own and so do you. That's the title of today's message. We all have idols. We all have them. Last week we shared the definition. We'll share the definition again and I'll take it one step further. Here's the definition of an idol. And much to our surprise, just like the video, it's not the definition of a carved image made out of wood to some ancient gods. Now it could be, and in biblical times it was. And we'll get to that in a minute, but this is the definition. And I hope you can take notes or listen to this again. Uh, welcome to those who are on live stream joining us today. Here's the definition. Anything so central and essential to life that should you lose it, your life would hardly feel like it's worth living. An idol is anything so central, essential to your life. Should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. What you love more than God, or what you rest your heart in more than God, is an idol in your life. Timothy Keller says in his book, that an idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you only that God can give. What God can give. Let me read that again. An idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs saturates, soaks your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you, only that thing that God can give is an idol. The Bible is very, very clear all the way from Genesis to Revelation. And it says this in Exodus 20. Exodus 20, you shall have no other gods before me, says the Lord Almighty. You shall not make any carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above 
or is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. Our cultures have changed. Our practices and rituals and traditions have changed. But the Word of God never changes. And the idols that we carry from generation to generation may look different, but they're still idols. And we need to address them. Next week, Pastor Daniel is going to address the hidden idols that we so often miss, forget, avoid, that are underneath the surface in our lives, in our culture, and even in religion today. And then the last week, we're going to talk about identifying our own idols, removing them. But it's not enough to just remove them. We need to replace them with the Holy Spirit, with the things of God. Amen. So... This series and us taking time to focus on the idols in our life and removing them and surrendering to God and God alone is all about keeping the Lord God on the throne of our hearts. Let me say that again. It is all about keeping God at the centermost, first place, central part of our hearts. Why? I'm going to let you rest on that for a minute. Why? Why is it all about keeping God on the throne of your hearts? You answer it for yourself. I believe that the reason why God is very clear and commands us to flee from idolatry and to get rid of all idols is because he loves his children. He absolutely loves his children. And just like you parents, he would go to any extreme, any length, to protect and preserve the health and the safety of his children. And you see, God wants you to have abundant life. He really does. It's all over Scripture. He wants you to have a full and healthy life. He wants you to have this amazing life that in return gives glory and thanks to God because creation was made to give glory to God. Amen. He doesn't like watching his children pursue other gods that he knows will never ever satisfy. Never ever fulfill the longings of your desires and your dreams. Idols always disappoint. Idols always fail us. And idols will always break your heart. So as a loving father of us, children, he cries out to us to flee from idolatry. Does that make sense as a parent? Son, stay away from the road. There are moving cars that will flat you like a pancake. And I want you around. I want to see your wedding day. I want to see you happy. Daughter, do not go into that relationship. It's not good for you. He will steal and break your heart 
He will disappoint you and he will rob you of the very thing that you want to keep for your husband. That's what God the Father is saying to us. Get rid of the things that you are clinging to that are not me. Because if you do, you will miss out. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you that sometimes, just like kids, we don't understand the radical love that you have for us when setting standards and commands for us to follow. They're not for you. They're for us to grow more like you. They're for our protection. They're for, for, for our preservation. They're for our spiritual health and growth. And right now, I just want to thank you for your law, your commands, your great love and protection and heart for your children. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Since idolatry is such a big deal in the Old Testament and the New Testament, I don't know if you realize this, I actually learned this this week as well. There are 14 different words for idols used in the Old Testament alone. 14 words have different meanings that is used for idols. Here's just a few of them to just make you ponder and maybe even chuckle. Um, the first one means weak or worthless. The second one, detestable. Idols, it's detestable, weak and worthless. That which is insubstantial or worthless. Deception or falsehood. This is all contempt and negative, okay? This is not good and healthy. Saw equals emptiness. Idols leave us emptiness. And my personal favorite, <laughs> Gillilum means dung pellets. It's in the Bible. And I say this tongue-in-cheek, but all so true. In the very literal sense here in Scripture, God is making it absolutely clear that we understand that when we bow and we worship and we pursue and we run after worthless idols, it's no better than worshiping a pile of dung pellets. That's what he's saying. It's only good for burning it up. Because it leaves us worthless, feeling worthless, in deception, a false belief, a false identity, and an emptiness. And if you are facing or experiencing any of those emotions of insecurity, lack of self-worth, lack of confidence, you're depressed, you're discouraged, May I suggest that you look at the idols that you've placed in your heart? Because God does not develop those feelings inside of you. It is only through you pursuing other things than God Almighty. It is a real battle, church. Just look around. It's a real fight. 
to keep God at the center of our lives. And you know, we say, oh, it, it's worse now and there's more distractions. No, it just looks different. But there's always been idols. It just looks different from generation to generation. And so today we're going to look at a biblical example of the battle of laying down our idols on the altar before God and proving to him that he is first in our lives like we say he is. And then second, we're going to just look at our own idols and see if you can identify to any of them. And then we're going to worship and then we're going to fellowship with the Miller family over cake. Now I'm distracted by cake. <laughs> That's the first idol. <laughs> I love you guys. So the first, a biblical example, we're going to go all the way to Genesis. Genesis 22. If you have your Bibles with you, please turn there. If you have a Bible app, please go there. If you don't have anything, it's on the screen, or we do have some Bibles randomly placed around the sanctuary in the seats. Our prayer as a leadership team here, church. And this has been rocking my heart for the last two months. And we're going to talk more about this in September. But I want to just speak to you in a, for, for just a moment. So you all could listen. Our heart is that you would fall so deeply in awe of Jesus. That Jesus would be the center of your life and everything would flow and trickle down from there. But in order for that truly to be healthy and for that to take place, you need to be in God's word. You need to be desiring it and hungry and thirsty. And can I tell you, that I am not there yet. But I'm going to be. I want to be a person that every morning sits at Jesus' feet before I do anything else. Because that is putting him first and in the central place of my life. Anything other than that is reversing the, 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 the priorities, the orders. And you know what? You don't have to spend time in the Word in the morning. If you want to do it at night, there's studies that say morning's the best. But if you're a night person and can truly be still and have that solitude to be in the Word, then do it. But if you want Jesus to truly come alive in you, you need to allow the Word of God to come alive in you. Because you know what's really cool? This word says that Jesus is the living word. This is just a book with words on it if the living word isn't inside of you. Back to my notes. Genesis 22, verse 1. We see this man called Abraham. And after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, I don't have a God voice. And he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. What? 
Let's back up a moment because this does not make sense. Genesis 12, let's go back to Genesis 12. And uh, by the way, this past, uh, um, actually, I think it was a year and a half ago, we went through the Old Testament. So you can download those messages online. And we we did a two-part series on Abraham. In Genesis 12, we see Abram. He's not Abraham yet until the covenant. Abram is called by God to pick up everything. His whole village, all of his people, all of his livestock, everything. To pick it up and go where the Lord will lead. The Lord did not tell them where. He just said, follow me. It's one of the first and biggest examples we have in the Bible of what is called faith. So let's stop for a minute and go on another rabbit trail of faith. Hebrews 11.1. Hebrews 11.1. Write it down or look at the screen here. This is what faith is. Because Abraham is showing us an example of faith, so we need to see what faith is. This is the New Living Translation. I love how it puts it. It says this, faith... Can we read this together, please? Ready? Faith is the confidence that what we hope for will actually happen. It gives us assurance about things we cannot see. Because of this faith that God calls us to have, even as small as a mustard seed. This is why God made 20% of the Ten Commandments dedicated to idolatry. 20%, that's a big deal, we should listen, right? Here's why. It's because anything besides God alone that we put our confidence and hope in will always fail us, disappoint us, and mislead us away from God. So that's why it's important when you have faith to have confidence and hope in the only God that will never fail us, leave us, or forsake us. So now, Genesis 12, we see Abraham called, stepping out in faith. Then in Genesis 15, we see God making the promise and the covenant to Abraham. Okay? God makes this covenant telling him that he will bless him and his wife, Sarah, with a son. A biological, physical son. And he will bless his offspring and they will go on from generation to generation to generation. And he will multiply his nation into a great, great nation. That's you and me talking about God's children. And he will multiply it more than the sands of the sea. Now fast forward with me from that promise of a son 20 years. Still no son How many of you would be doubting and wondering if you really heard from God or if it was the enchiladas you ate? (laughs) I would. And here they are waiting and waiting and waiting. And Abraham saying, God, we're not getting any younger. They're in their 90s. Already it's pretty much an impossibility. And they're waiting and they're waiting. And guess what? Then they try to help God along. Maybe God wants us to help them along. 
So, hey, honey, here's my servant Hagar. Why don't you have a kid with her? And that's probably what God meant. Wrong. An idol. And they waited, and they waited, and they waited. Can I stop there and just ask you a question? Has God ever asked you to wait on him for a promise that maybe he's given you or a dream that you have, and he's just put you in a season of waiting? Some of you are still waiting. It's hard to wait. It's difficult. It's anguish sometimes. It's so difficult to wait. But just like Abraham, God was doing something in the waiting. What was he doing? He was getting rid of Abraham's idols and causing him to wait on the God who does the impossible. Because if he didn't wait, right when he told him in Genesis 12, and they had a baby right away, it could be easily justified that it was Natural conception. You know, there's something so priceless and precious about seasons of waiting. And in the life of Abraham and in our lives, we see three things in the waiting. And this has everything to do with idols, I promise. I'll bring it back together. Number one, in the waiting we learn that God, there is one God. There is one Savior. And I'm not it. There's one God, there's one Savior, and you are not it. And in the waiting, we also learn full dependence and trust on God and God alone. And in the waiting, thirdly, it is all about Becoming more like Christ and getting rid of our idols. In the waiting, it's more important of what God is doing in you rather than what he is going to do through you. Did you get that? In the waiting, God longs to get you to a place where it's more important to see what God is doing in you rather than what God is going to do for you Or through you. And that is why God calls us to seasons of waiting. And so after 25 years, five more years after waiting and waiting and waiting, the promise comes to pass. Abraham and Sarah have a child named Isaac. You know what Isaac means? Laughter. God laughs. Why? It's because there's no idols that can step in his way to do what is humanly impossible. And God just laughs. There's no idols that can do what God does. By the way, Sarah was 100 years old when she had Isaac. There's one God, one Savior, and we're not it. We need to learn to fully trust in God Almighty and not the things that don't satisfy. And last, the waiting is all about what God is doing in you, not just for you 
or through you. So Genesis 22, two, now we see Abraham with his precious son, the son of the promise. In Hebrew culture, the firstborn son is everything. Absolutely everything. It's all their hopes, their dreams, their status in life. Everything that they wait for, everything that they long for, is through their firstborn son. Times have not changed, has it? Children can become an idol if we place them before God. And so Abraham is going to go through a test to see where his idols are and where God Almighty is on the totem pole of, God's, of Abraham's heart. So let's look at this. Genesis 22, 2 says, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. Whom you love. Doesn't say that it's bad to love your children. But if your love for your children goes beyond the love that you have for God Almighty, that's where there's issues. Go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Verse 3, so Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey and took on two of the young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Verse 9, when they came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Verse 10, then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now, I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns, and Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. What does this have to do with idols? And why in the world would God ask Abraham to murder his son when God hated child sacrifice? I think we'll be able to truly understand this once we understand the perspective of God's heart. It's not about murdering and sacrificing your child. The real question here about Abraham is this. Has Abraham been waiting and sacrificing for God or for the boy? Was God just a means to an end? To whom was Abraham ultimately giving his heart? Did Abraham have the peace did he have the humility? Did he have the boldness? Did he have the unmovable poise that comes to those who trust in God rather than circumstances, public opinion, or their own competence? Had Abraham learned to trust God alone, to love God for himself, and not just for what he could get out of God? I believe the answer was told on top of the mountain in Moriah. 
So what's really going on here at the altar of sacrifice? God is shaking Abraham of all of his idols to put his priorities in place. He's shaking Abraham of anything so central and essential to his life that if he should lose it, his life would hardly feel worth living. Sound familiar? That's the definition of an idol. It's a thing or a person you love more than God or rest your heart in more than God. You see, this child represented everything to Abraham. This was the child of the promise, like I said. They lived in hopes and aspirations and they were driven by everything for their children. And God is saying, are you willing to lay down this child that I have given you as a blessing and an heir to the blessing of the promise that I'm giving you? Are you willing to lay it down before me? And we see that Abraham was. And now this old man, all that Abraham truly loves and lives for, is laying on the altar. And this test of allegiance and sacrifice and worship in Abraham's day is like in our day asking a surgeon to yield the use of his hands to God. Asking a singer to give up his or her vocal cords to God. It's like asking a professional runner to render and surrender their legs down as a sacrifice to the Lord. So what's your Isaac? What's the one thing in your life that you treasure more than anything? So now it comes to us. It comes to us. Idolatry in our lives is usually taking good things. So everything we're going to talk about from here on out, good things. But we make them God things. We make them ultimate things. And we turn them into idols. And instead of using them as a blessing, we use them as a curse robbing what God wants to give his children who fully depend on him. And Jesus spent his whole ministry talking about idols. He may have not said the word idol all the time, but here's something you may recognize when Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God. With all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and all your strength. God alone. Jesus says you can't serve two masters. You serve me, and you serve me alone, and I am everything more than enough for your life. When we get that wrong, and we give our heart and our soul and our mind and our strength to other things rather than God. It's called idolatry. 
I have them, and so do you. But hopefully we can lay down our Isaacs today. So now let's have some fun identifying maybe some of your idols and my idols. One of the most common or at least acknowledged idols that has not changed through the years, what do you think? What do you think? Actually, hold on. Here. Ready? We're going to take a selfie. Everyone say hi. Ready? Here we go. One, two, three. Awesome. It's ourselves. It's called pride. And for today, we're going to call it prideolatry. Can you say it with me? Prideolatry. Say it one more time. Prideolatry. That's what idolatry is. It's about pride. Guess what's in the middle? The middle letter of pride, I. Yep. Now, ourselves is good. We're created in God's image. God's image. He loves us, and he wants us to have abundant life. He even wants us to have the desires of our heart. God wants to bless his children. But when our needs become more important than God and God alone, we start heading down a slippery slope. We want to be loved. We want to be accepted. We want to be affirmed. We want to be noticed. We want to be understood. We want significance and value. All of these are good things when properly placed underneath the authority of God Almighty. However, when it's all about me, 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 Want to talk about I, I, Toby Keith, something? Yeah? When it's all about that, and my wants, and my needs, and my desires, it is no longer God who is the king of our hearts. It is us. And that is a recipe for disaster. Just ask any couple that has been through a divorce. Pride. Me, me, me. Pride. Do you know that pride stinks like those pellets of dung? Now remember I told you I've been trying to practice what I preach. Well, God has a sense of humor and he made me smell the stench of my sin and my idols yesterday. I went fishing Saturday night, didn't catch anything, but went fishing real late for catfish. So, you know, fishermen, when you fish for catfish, you got to use stinky bait, okay? So it was around 3 o'clock in the morning, I got home, and I was really tired. And so I decided, you know what, I'll get to the stuff later, and I'll go to bed. Well, the next morning I got up, and everything was going well. And then I had a fit of pride. Something was said to me that I didn't like. And I got prideful. You don't tell me that. And I decided I'm going to leave. And I'm going to go joyriding. And I'm going to run some errands. 
And I had so much pride in my heart. And I knew it was wrong. But I went downstairs anyways to get in my van, and oh my goodness. <laughs> I almost vomited. It was so bad. <laughs> so I had to back up my van, and I then took an hour to clean out my van and the stench as every step of the way God was reminding me of the stench of my pride. It was an idol in my life. And this idol of self, if not recognized and removed or replaced, it will lead to intense selfishness, jealousy, and envy. And I want to show you something in Scripture that should take your breath away. It's in James chapter 3. Listen to this, teens. Verse 15 says this, verse 14, but if you have bitter jealousy, bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Jealousy, selfishness. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. The idol of self is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. If you don't believe me that we have a self problem, Cynthia Heimel lived in New York in the 1970s. She was a writer, and she knew so many famous actors and artists before their fame and then after their fame, and while they were still bussing tables and driving cabs, but she also knew them after their fame, and she wrote this. I pity celebrities. She says, no, I really do. Should have this on the slide, David. Once perfectly pleasant, maybe not. Just listen to my beautiful voice. Once perfectly pleasant human beings, but now their wrath is awful. You see, they wanted fame. They worked and pushed, and morning after each of them, the morning after each of them became famous, they wanted to take an overdose. Because that giant thing that they were striving for that something that was going to make everything okay, that was going to make their lives bearable, that was going to provide them with personal fulfillment, fulfillment and happiness had happened. Yet the very next morning, they were still them. The dis disillusionment turned them howling and insufferable, leading to many of the celebrities she was speaking about to take their own life. Pridolatry. Number two is one I'm going to go quickly through because I don't think I have to say much about the value of the dollar, what we live for. If only we were out of debt. If only we had more money. If only I got a raise. If only I got a new job. If only, if only, and all of a sudden our heart is filled with an idol called wealth. Success, status, and power. Jesus says in Matthew 6, verse 24, no one can serve two masters, 
For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Isn't that true? But yet, what is it we do? What is it we do? Do you remember the horrible economic? Horrible economic. I'm doing this on purpose. (laughs) The horrible economic crash in 2008. Some of you remember it all too well because your stocks and investments went through the ground. One thing you probably didn't know is that the economic crash didn't cause as much damage financially as it did to the devastation it caused in people's hearts. There was so much despair and anguish of these people's loss financially that it drove them to never being able to recover. And so many executives and corporate people and finance people who just lived for the dollar committed suicide, taking their own lives because they couldn't bear life without their wealth, status, and power. How about you? Here's a quote that Tim Keller gives that wraps this idol up in a box in a nice, neat bowl. Our society has developed a class of high achievers with rank-link imbalances. Disordered love is what he's talking about. They have social skills for vertical relationships for improving their rank with mentors and bosses, but none for genuine bonding and horizontal relationships with spouses, friends, and family. Their career, wealth, success, status, power. As the years go by, then they come to the sickening realization that their grandeur is not enough and that they are lonely. Many of their children and spouses are alienated from them. Can you relate? They seek to heal the hurt. They get into affairs or take other desperate measures to medicate the inner emptiness that comes from this idol. Then comes the breakdown or the scandal or the bow or both. They had sacrificed everything to the God of success, wealth, and power, but it wasn't enough. In ancient times, the deities were bloodthirsty and hard to please. They still are. Third idol, media. It is strangling and choking our culture. My generation, the older generation, some, but definitely my generation and the millennial generation, mass murder, what media is doing. I don't know if you know this, but they have this new trinket out here called the fidget spinner. You know this? Yeah, this is mine. I bought it. (laughs) Why? It's because I can't keep my fingers still anymore. Because I'm texting. Count how many texts, even if they're for work and ministry, count how many texts you are typing up a day. Mine is hundreds a day. We can't sit still 
anymore as a culture. Our phone was a tool and a blessing. It is awesome. It has advanced our country and our society in so many great ways. However, it becomes when it becomes consumption rather than a function, it is an idol. When it becomes consumption rather than a function, it is an idol. Men and women, can you put this down at the dinner table? You need to. I need to. Can you put this down when you're sitting at a restaurant? I tell you what, there's no relationship anymore in our culture. It's literally, I go to restaurants and I see kids and adults, families sitting at the table doing this. They're not talking anymore. It's an idol and it's killing our society. Internet and games and social media can be an idol. It can be a good thing, but if it defines you and you find your identity in it, you have made it an idol and it needs to be placed on the altar. Let me just ask you, and I'm not trying to bring guilt or condemnation, I'm just trying to bring awareness. Take an inventory just this week of how many hours you have spent on media, phone, internet, TV, entertainment. It'll blow your mind if you're honest. Again, it's not a bad thing necessarily, but when it defines you, it is an idol. We have an idol in our culture, and it's strangling us to death. And parents, it is robbing your kids' future. It is robbing your kids' education. It is robbing your kids' spiritual health. I'm not saying throw out the phone. I'm saying teach them to put God first in their life. Put boundaries in their lives. Put boundaries in your lives. And here's the real dangerous thing about media. Not only can it become an idol church, but it can become a vehicle for sin and habitual sin. Here we go. Lust, sexual immorality, violence, hate, vulgarity, envy, self-destructive behavior, and did I mention pornography? It is a huge deal. Because it robs the abundant life that God wants for his children. We sensationalize everything, y'all. We can't stand being bored, and so we keep busy, occupied, or we find drama, 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 drama in media or our personal lives to distract us. Do you realize, and I'm sorry I'm getting passionate, but I'm speaking to the sin in my life. Do you realize that in our culture, everyone now has the right to be offended and hold a grudge? Thank you, Facebook. <laughs> and I'm not going to, I could do a series on Facebook. I love Facebook. I'm on Facebook. I love how it connects me to relationships. But that's not what a lot of people use it for. They use it as an idol. Done. And last but not least, and I know I'm going a little long, but time can be an idol. And that's our last point is our schedules. You ready? 
Put your seatbelt on. I needed some props, so I went through my son's toys last night. <laughs> and I got some props. I'm sorry. And I don't want to offend. Again, remember, these are all good things and these can be blessings. But when they are out of line, they can become an idol. Just ask yourself with each item, can I live without it? Am I doing it too much? Am I allowing my kids to be consumed by it? Sports, baseball, basketball, soccer, and of course I don't have a football. Our schedules are so full with sports that everything else, including our kids, gets the scraps. Disordered love. Don't let your kids' activities get ahead of your family time and your relationship. Don't. Don't sacrifice that on the altar. Don't sacrifice your family time and your health of your family on the altar for sports. Do sports. Love sports. But do you know that we're more committed these days to sports on Sundays than we are gathering together in fellowship? I'm sorry, but it's the truth. It's the truth. We let it lead our lives to exercise. We need to be healthy. This is, by the way, it rolls out your legs, I guess. It's for yoga or something. Um, not Joseph's toy. Computer. How much time do we spend on the computer? Our cars. Our cars. Our possessions. My boy loves music, but music can become an idol. Fishing. Now it's going off. Fishing. <laughs> Tractors. We live in Blanchester. Uh, I think my wife threw in there scene 75 pirate coins. I don't know why. <laughs> Golf. Tractor. And now our schedules and we wonder why we don't have time for God. We wonder why our lives are crazy busy and we're stressed to the max. And we're saying, I want time with God, and I know my faith is my most biggest priority, and I want to grow with God, and I want to serve the church, and I want my kids to serve the church and enter the ministry. But we're teaching our kids to have idols. This doll I found, and I was really sad that my son had a doll, but <laughs> I have a daughter coming. So I'm going to end with this quote. <laughs> and I'm trying to have a light sense of humor. But this is a big deal. Here's a quote by a very well-known secular American writer called David Foster Wallace. He was a novelist. He was well-known. Unfortunately, he committed suicide in 2008. A few years back, he gave a commencement speech at a liberal arts college, and these are the words of that speech before he committed suicide. In the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. This is a secular contemporary writer, by the way, not a believer. 
Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it Jesus Christ or Allah, be it Yahweh or the wicked mother goddess, a compelling reason for choosing that kind of God is because pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. You will never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age starts showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power. You will feel weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others just to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect. Being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. The insidious thing about these forms of worship is that they are unconscious. They are default settings. That's what's scary, church. Unless you have a God who can deliver the hopes you bring in these things, it is going to eat you alive. And last night, as we were going through these toys, and the band can come up. My wife and I had a heart-stopping realization. Eye-opening revelation. The toys that we buy for our children are giving our idols to our children. Look at the toys your children are playing with and what you bless your kids with, and it is the very idols that we are struggling with in our life. Look at these toys. We love our kids so much that we want to give them all of our idols to make them happy. To meet their every need, their want, and their wish. We want them to be happy, right? Happiness is a feeling, and it's temporal, church. But joy is different. Joy is cultivated not by idols, but identity. Did you hear me? I know we're kind of disengaging, I know. Joy is cultivated by not idols, but identity. The moments that we should be living for and investing for is when our kids come to the realization of their identity in Jesus Christ. That's what we should be investing in, and that's what we should be doing for our children. And as the band begins to worship, I'm going to leave you with one scripture. And then we're just going to worship. If you need to come to the altar, if you need to bow your head, if you, whatever you need to do to lay down your Isaacs, please do so. Come back the next couple weeks and we're going to help guide you through this process. Revelations 2, verses 2 through 4 says, I know your works, I know your toil, and your patient endurance. He's talking to the church of Ephesus. He says, 
but you've tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. You're doing everything right as a church, but this I have against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. Come back home to God's amazing love. It is the only thing that will ever satisfy and fulfill your longings. But you need to lay down your Isaacs and your idols that you're clinging to and running to and come back home. Stand and worship.